Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. This week, beneficiaries and work and income. The vision of the Ministry of Social Development is to help New Zealanders to help themselves be safe, strong and independent. But many beneficiaries are taking to social media to talk about what they see as poor treatment from its agency, work and income. But is this a sign of real problems or the opinions of a disgruntled few? I didn't choose to get pregnant. I was a student, I was studying, I had a 10-year plan for what I was going to do with my life. Now Sarah is at home with a one-year-old child. While the baby was unplanned, she loves looking after her, but also finds surviving on her benefit a struggle. And you try to make an actual life for your child. And I mean, she's... She doesn't get new clothes or anything like that. I can't afford to buy her new things. I buy from op shops, so it's not even like I waste money on things I don't need. I don't drink, I don't smoke. The General Secretary of the Public Service Association, Glenn Barclay, says government policies need to change. Really, the main driver is political for us. It comes from the government. Um, the regime we've had for the last few years is what we think is what's driving this. Although, you know, we've had quite a long time going right back to the 80s and so forth uh, under the neoliberal regime that we have been operating under, under d- different governments as well, which basically says that if you're, um, if you're poor and you're on a benefit, then you're lucky and privileged in some way. Kay Reid is in charge of frontline service staff at Work and Income and admits at times things do go wrong, but says they've listened to calls for the service to focus more on customers. We don't like it. We know it makes all of us unhappy when we have a client complaining because they haven't been treated in the right way or they haven't received the right type of support that they knew that they needed for their needs and we move quickly to try to correct Absolutely. Um, We are certainly on the up. We're determined to actually be a highly effective, highly empathetic um, service provider. This insight explores whether the culture of work and income New Zealand needs some change. Sarah, along with several other people in this programme, doesn't want to be identified, so is using another name. She understands that work and income have to be careful with money and check whether people qualify for financial help. Sarah acknowledges that some staff are really helpful, but often feels her interactions with work and income are more like a battle than a hand of support. They, they judge you. You look at them and they're like... Everybody gives you that look like, well, you should have thought about it that before you hopped into bed with these people. And it's like, but I was using birth control that I thought I was fully covered on and it turns out I wasn't, so found out I was pregnant with a child and it's, do I remove this potential person, which is against who I am as a person, or do I, do I keep her and live my life with, now with a child, so... It's not just your family that judges you or your friends. It's people that you don't know who are then making decisions about your life and whether or not it's valid in a way. 
along with living as frugally as she can in a regional town south of Auckland. Sarah talks about how difficult it is to be with friends or in a relationship when receiving a benefit. So I, I don't go out places. I can't have... I can't be too close to my male friends because in case someone turns around and says, oh, but she's in a relationship. I mean, how long are you together before your class is in a relationship if you're just, this is this person's just your best friend? Or when you look at starting a new relationship and Windsor's like, oh, if you're in a relationship... We need to know about it so we can take their income into account. It's where they draw the line. And you live in this state of just anxiety when... I'm sorry, but you've, if, you've, if you've been together like two months, you don't expect that person to financially support you. Anna, again not her real name, has two primary school-aged boys, one of whom has a disability. But for years, she wasn't told about the childcare she was entitled to. I wasn't aware until five years after the, him receiving this child to care disability allowance. As part of that, you're automatically entitled to 50 hours childcare assistance. I wasn't aware of that until I um, went up to the counter one day and they said to me, oh, because yeah, you're receiving child disability allowance, you're entitled to this. And I'm like, well, why hasn't anybody told me? She says it would have changed her life if she'd known. It would have been stressless, you know, like it's a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. It would have made such a difference. Anna has been working and on and off the benefit over the past 13 years. She's now taking a degree to get into an area of work where there's a real need for staff. But meeting the work requirements, taking care of her children and full-time university study is almost too much. When you're confronted in your first interview to go back on the benefit that you haven't been on for about probably about three years, to have someone say, you realise you have obligations, and the tone that I was told that, it was just sort of like, oh, OK, um, yep, I did realise. <laughs> and then to have them, like, each, I think it was three monthly or so, I would have an appointment with my case manager to say, to see if I was meeting those obligations, and... You know, my first appointment with him, I said, um, you know, I said I was look, working casual work and he was happy with that and he said, I said I'm also applying, I, at that time I applied for about 20 other jobs, I think, and I mentioned that to him and he goes, so you're meeting your obligations? And I said, mm-hmm, knowing that I wasn't working the 20 hours. Anna worries every day that she will be forced to give up her study. I'm passionate about what I'm training for and stuff and, you know, I really want to do this and I know it'll be better better for us because I've done heaps of different jobs over the years, heaps of different jobs, and nothing has given me as much joy in, in my job that I know will sustain me for a long period of time. And any other job I've done, you know, it's been like not so much minimum wage but just above that. She too understands that those receiving a benefit have to live up to the rules set out, but she laughs at the idea that going on a benefit is a lifestyle choice. You can't put everybody in the same basket and expect that they have the same situations. Everybody's different, you know. The, OK, yes, there are some people out there that do ruin it for others. There are, honestly, there are. But it's not a lifestyle choice. And for people who say that... You know, you choose to have children, so you've got to pay for them. 
what an arrogant, pig-headed thing to say. Like, seriously? And you wouldn't describe it as an easy life? Hell no! Sorry, am I selling <laughs> No, it's not an easy life at all. Like, it doesn't make life easy. It's a struggle. Michael Fletcher is a senior lecturer in the Department of Management at AUT and specialises in studying the national government's welfare reforms and using a future liability model as a way of judging how well the welfare system is performing. He also used to work in policy development at the Ministry of Social Development. He says the political direction is helping to shape how many beneficiaries feel about the system. One is the much harsher um, administration of welfare, which has been quite a deliberate policy, and so that's included um, a focus on more obligations for welfare for beneficiaries, um, a whole lot of pre-benefit activities before you can even get any benefit, um, stricter and much more frequent use of sanctions, 80% of which are for minor infringements like being late for an appointment. He has misgivings about a model that measures success based on the numbers moving off the benefit. I think it's deeply flawed. You can't run a a welfare system whose job it is to provide security for people when they need it and focus it on just one number, which is around just the cost to the taxpayer. You need to look at a number of outcomes, and a crucial one is how well people are doing, whether whether you're able to help them into work and whether their lives are better off as a result. And another worried about the way work and income is operating is the General Secretary of the Public Service Association, Glenn Barclay. He says the 4,700 PSA union members at work and income are frustrated in their desire to do a great job. The biggest single factor is lack of time. Um, And our members would like to be able to spend more time with clients to find out what their needs are. And they're not able to do that. They're measured on how many they put through, whether it's um, face-to-face interviews or on the phone. Um, So the ability to build up trusting relationships with clients uh, isn't there for most most of our frontline staff. He says while there are trials with case managers having more time to deal with younger clients, that's not the case for the majority of staff. The general case managers are working with a ratio of 1 to 121, and the ability to actually respond to their needs is very limited. Is that an average, 1 to 121, or is that a target? I understand that's an average. So you've got workers who are dealing with you know, up to 40 people a day, those who are scheduled, um, but there are also you know, just the walk-ins who might have a pressing need, um, and no process time in between. And, you know, look, there's a pressure on them to be efficient and um, one of the consequences of that is that uh, members who are doing their best, working efficiently, can sometimes come over as being brisk and rude, although that is not their intention. A former work and income frontline worker, we'll call Margaret, backs those thoughts over workloads. She says workers would like to be able to do more, but generally don't have the time. Resourcing is a really big factor, and I think most of us go home thinking, I did what I did, but I could have done more. But the time doesn't allow. And that's just because of the demand. Work and income, yeah? We work with people to help employment and we help them with financial assistance. There's more than that. Housing is massive. Emergency housing in particular areas, particularly Auckland, 
there's always more. There's always more. And you don't get a break to take a breath and just think about it. It is literally nose down, tail up, all day. And looking after those frontline staff at Work and Income New Zealanders manager Kay Reid, she explains how the Ministry of Social Development has to work within the policy set out by government and manage a great deal of taxpayer money carefully. And that also means setting performance goals for all staff, including those who work at the front line. We actually have to take care of $25 billion of Crown funding and we take that responsibility seriously. So in order to give effect to two parts, first, the client having a great experience, and second, MSD being fiscally responsible, we actually have to make sure that those transactions for client-facing staff, what we've understood from what the clients need on average and you as a staff member and your ability. Some windows are, on average, 30 minutes. Some can be up to an hour. But the stories about how it is often difficult to deal with the agency keep surfacing. Cleo ended up on the benefit after fleeing Christchurch following the earthquake. Because my baby was so young and also I was extremely traumatised from the earthquakes and my partner essentially leaving us, um, yeah, I wasn't in a position that I could work. Yeah, so I had to rely on work and income to completely financially maintain my family. She was looking after her two young girls but would have preferred not to be supported by the welfare state and could see no way to move beyond the situation she found herself in. So you're absolutely just trapped in this never-ending cycle of basically poverty. So often her experiences at work and income weren't good. I mean I ended up in tears so many times leaving there or in there crying, um, demanding to see the manager and things because it would be so unfair. Like one time I went to get wood because my heat pump in my rental property kept shutting down when it was too cold and I just wanted like $50 worth of wood and the woman was just like, no. Freezing cold house in Dunedin, two small children, we are literally freezing and she did not care. She was just awful. And it's not like, oh, I'm really sorry you've done your quota of power or wood or whatever for the year. It was just like, no, you're not having it. Cleo, again not her real name, is now working part-time and no longer has to rely on a benefit. You f don't feel good when you're on a benefit. I mean, I didn't feel good receiving a benefit. It made me feel bad about myself. There was like a stigma around it. You know, when people ask you what you do, and you're like, I'm a beneficiary. Um, people just look at you essentially like you're beneath them, that you're sort of subhuman or something. That sort of feedback is difficult for former work and income case manager Margaret to hear. It makes us sound like we're a bunch of mongrels. But in by far and away, most of my colleagues over the years, this is not a job you do for the money. You do it either because you've experienced it and you can do it better, which is what led me to the work, or you really have empathy for the situation your clients are in 
and you want to do whatever you can in your power to support them to a better place. But Kay Reid says they are making changes and giving staff more power to make decisions. And we've just shifted uh, some activity at the beginning of September, permissions for our contact centre staff to actually approve and process hardship grants. And what we're seeing is that those numbers are rising because it's simpler for clients, and their numbers around three to 500 during the week, but they can also make a call on a weekend. But Work and Income does recognise that outside advocates do seem to be needed to help beneficiaries, as it has a contract with Citizens Advice Bureau in Auckland to provide just such a service. The Bureau's National Social Policy Advisor, Jane McKendry, says the service received over 7,000 calls about income support nationwide over each of the last two years. She says it appears some centres do keep information back about what clients might be entitled to. It seems that unless you know what questions to ask, no, no information is offered. And sometimes... We will work with a person, we'll use the manual and procedures, which is work and incomes policy and procedures that, that is available to anyone online, and the, the rest of the MSD website, and we'll work through what the client has told us of their circumstances and what it seems that they may be eligible for, and then give them a list of questions to ask of the work and income staff. She says when people have the support of an advocate, they tend to get more help. It's down to possibly three things. One is the power of having a witness. One is the impact that an advocate can have on actually supporting the client and helping the client to keep calm and have the have commu- good communication. And I think uh, working income probably appreciate that support people and advocates know a little bit more about the system, have more experience than clients often do, and also can help clients make complaints. No one wants a complaint against them, so encourages you to provide a good service. The Ministry's Kay Reid believes time constraints may have previously affected how well staff checked what individuals were entitled to. She thinks the greater use of online forms and other changes are meaning frontline staff can do better. If we take an individual's circumstance or the individual's family circumstance and we create that time for our people to actually have engaging, high-value conversations with people, they can then determine the overall need for an individual and an individual's family rather than pull out the book bang, 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 A, B, C and D, that's it, see you later, off you go. Mary became a beneficiary in the late 90s after her marriage broke up and says generally she was well supported by staff at work and income. But even then, with two primary school-aged boys, the level of assistance meant life was a struggle and she still feels she failed her children. I couldn't give them the things that everyone else in their class at school or in the neighbourhood took for granted. If they ever went on holiday, it was because somebody else was taking them and footing the bill. Your basic responsibility as a parent is to provide for your children, and you can't do that. It's the biggest failure there is. Along with the day-to-day financial worries and personal disappointment, Mary says the stigma of being on the benefit was huge. We've built up this perception that people who are beneficiaries are, um, you know, you're born being a beneficiary like you're born with blue eyes. You know, it's just, it's just who you are. Actually, it's not who you are, it's what happens to you. And if you are in 
a, a community where that sort of thing doesn't happen to people, then you're not only dealing with the circumstances, but you're dealing with the with the shame and the humiliation of being a failure by by your your social group standards. Mary says nothing much seems to have changed when it comes to attitudes in society between then and now. And research seems to suggest there may be less support currently for those on any sort of unemployment benefit. Louise Humpage is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Auckland and she's been studying attitudes in New Zealand towards beneficiaries. She's been looking at data from the 1990s onwards, trying to work out what, if any, link there might be between policies and the views being expressed by the public. The data comes from questions asked in the New Zealand election study, and up to 3,000 people took part. Louise Humpage says there is still support for the welfare state, but it varies depending on which sector is being looked at. While with things like health, education and pensions, actually you can say there's still really quite substantial support in those areas. So the New Zealanders haven't kind of turned against the welfare state, um, but we can see there has been a real diminishing in support for the unemployed. And the questions that are kind of asked in these surveys, the unemployed is is a bit vague, um, but that does mean kind of sole parents, it means people on you know, disability uh, support payments as well as those we might traditionally regard as the unemployed. Um, so for example there's a question about uh, whether it's the kind of government's responsibility to ensure a decent standard of living um, for that group but actually pretty much since then we've seen this decline. So it's never been super strong in New Zealand, we are a kind of liberal welfare state, we've always had a strong emphasis on individual responsibility and self-reliance, but down from about 58% in uh, 1990, um, and that fell all the way down to 45% in 2011. Kiriana Burgess has been looking after her seven-year-old grandson on Auckland's North Shore for four years after her daughter was unable to care for him. She told the authorities she was taking care of her grandson, but no-one spoke to her about any support that might be available. It was some time before she found out about unsupported child benefit. She applied, but was turned down the first time. I got no letter from them at all, so nothing written legally. I got told when I saw the case manager next that it was because there was no child, youth and family involvement. And why would there need to be any child, youth and family involvement? Ask yourself. Was it explained to you? Uh, Well, not really. No, to me it was unfathomable. I was just like, this is crazy. One of the reasons I took my grandson is I didn't want him going into places where children get beaten. Why would I want that? He's my grandson, I'll take care of him. She tried again about a year later with the help of the support group Grandparents Raising Grandchildren. This time she was successful, but disappointed with her treatment and the information offered. Kiriana's advocate urged her to complain took ages for the application and it was just a rigmarole and she said to me we're going to lay a formal complaint. This is disgusting, this is just so bad, I've seen this so many times. So we went to the top of Wins, Auckland and I had a meeting with her. I just said, well, you know, grandparents are older. Yeah, I'm a, gra- I'm a young grandparent. I said, but I feel very worried for the ones that are older and they're taking on this huge responsibility of raising their grandchildren and I want to make sure that they're going to be okay and that there's going to be people there saying, yes, you have got assistance available to you, you know. That dispute stayed at manager level, but the next step up is a benefit review committee, and Christchurch lawyer Simonette Boulay specialises in those cases. She says the whole committee setup needs changing, as it's lacking independence and is systemically biased. 
Seminit Bole says her work at Canterbury Community Law has made it clear to her that beneficiaries should be able to take cases to a body set up outside the ministry, as is the case with other government departments. The beneficiary is in a forum that is essentially an internal system that looks like a review, but there's there's no true independence there. So the whole law is already tilted against the beneficiary. Seminit Bolle believes the system brings up questions about natural justice and fairness. While she acknowledges the ministry has some excellent investigators, she's also worried about the way some of the cases are checked by social development staff. If I didn't go to the interviews that are done, I get transcripts of that, then I find that that witness never actually freely said, yes, they're living in a relationship, or I think she's, she's living with a boyfriend. No, it's actually an, the investigator has prompted prompted and prompted, and eventually that witness might say, uh, well, yeah, might be, uh, I'm not sure, yeah, maybe. So on the surface, again, it looks like the ministry has really done a good investigation, but if you actually dig a little bit deeper, then you find that was a kind of investigation that is actually not acceptable in a legal sense. Work and income makes about 5 million decisions a year with review rights attached to them. In the 2016-17 year, nearly 5,000 applications for a review of decision were received and more than 1,000 went on to the Benefit Review Committee, where the original decision was confirmed in three-quarters of the cases. The Ministry's Kay Reid says in-house investigators understand the processes. Well, we actually bring people in who who are independent of the person who's made the original decision. They are still MSD investigators, though, aren't they, even if they're not the ones that investigated that case? They have an understanding of the business, which is really important because the policies are, are complex. So there's your frontline case manager or person, whoever you engage with, then there's their manager then there's their manager's manager and we just make sure that it can go right through and it can go through to an appeal authority as well. But overall, lawyer Seminit Bole wants the ministry to have a better understanding of the realities of day-to-day life for those it's helping. I think the ministry's lost, it's lost a lot of kindness. There's no kindness there. Uh, just the humanity... And what my issue is here is that the ministry and the people that work with it, they're public servants. And public servants have standards, professionalism, courtesy, service, independence. The ministry is not coming up to the mark there, and that's my impression. AUT academic Michael Fletcher says by now there should be comprehensive assessments of the welfare reforms. At the time that the reforms came in, they evaluation plan said that there would be an evaluation of outcomes in terms of employment and incomes for people leaving welfare. Well, we haven't seen that yet, and by now we should have. And Citizens Advice Bureau's Jane McKendry says despite the drive by the Ministry to focus more on their clients, some other changes could make the engagement with work and income more pleasant. A little bit of empathy goes a long way. Do work and income staff think about what it feels like to first of all go through a guard, then come into an environment which you're totally unfamiliar with, where there's 
20, 30 other desks sitting around you with other clients sharing their personal stories right nearby to you. Good customer service, treating people with dignity and respect, giving them some space and some time. It does seem that some service centres are understaffed and it does seem that the quality of the manager makes a huge difference. Probably the biggest thing is being a lot more transparent and a lot more forthcoming about what people are entitled to. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's Insight for this week. You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz forward slash insight or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. Technical production for this program was by Phil Bench.